Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 7th, 2018, and this is episode 2233 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. That means it's time for your calls to the Think Line or your feedback via the Speak Pipe. To get us on the Think Line, you pick up your phone, you dial the number 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. To get us on the speak pipe, you go by the survivalpodcast.com, click on Contact, and on the Contact page, you'll see the Speak Pipe button. And you can use that on any device with a microphone, including your smartphone, to send us a message on the speak pipe. All of the questions today are off of the Think Line. I do have a few on the speak pipe that we will hold for the next, uh, next call-in show. Uh, but I do kind of move back and forth between them to try to keep things going until I run out of calls and then I, you know, scrape up whatever's available. Anyway, it would be a good time to get calls in. I will be gone next Friday, so we have a little bit of a delay in between, but it'd be a good time to go ahead and get the stuff in and build it up so that we have a lot of material when I get back the following week from my vacation. Anyway. What do we got on deck today? Well, before we get to your calls, I'm going to do a little follow-up on my snake question from Tuesday. A commenter on the blog took exception to the way I answered that question. I'm going to clarify just a little bit and explain why. Well, I don't really care if you get your nose bent once in a while because of the way I answered a freaking question since I answered about, oh, I don't know, probably... 10 to 15,000 questions since I started this show. Uh, next up, I have a question on growing something in your office, and I'm going to say probably shouldn't do what the caller asks about doing as far as the first thing anyway. Uh, some updates on what I'm growing this year. Um, one of the best Jack, you're a jerk calls ever, and if you've never heard of Jack, you're a jerk call, I think you'll like this. This guy really sells this one uh, big time. Um, uh, a segment on weed eaters and organic lawn care. A question on what I am brewing this year, and the answer is not much, but I'm getting ready to when I get back from Florida. And uh, what what still would I recommend as far as a still for distilling? Uh, thoughts on sunscreen, question on that, and a heads up on a Leo trade-in on Glock 22s. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to that, let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 137 A.D., We have codified customs tariffs, contributed by David Verne at tspwiki.com. One of Rome's most important client states was a small desert city-state of Palmyra. It sat on an import trade route, and Palmyra kept the trade routes clear of bandits, who were often the same guards hired to protect the routes. Essentially, it was a protection racket. The, the empire was happy to let Palmyra remain independent as long as trade kept flowing and they didn't extort too much. Eventually, the rulers of Palmyra came up with a better way to make money and decided to set down a system of written customs taxes. This was praised by a caravan of merchants since tax agents couldn't arbitrarily fix taxes. You know how that would be. Like, oh, look, pepper. Yeah, today's pepper taxes, uh, 13, no, four, is it Tuesday? 15%. And I don't like the cut of your chin, so 16 and a half for you, right? So it prevented that. The laws were engraved on a stone wall on a stone wall on April 18th, 137 AD. 
and they had lasted until modern day. David says, I could not find if they still exist since ISIS destroyed much of the ruins during their occupation of this site. My take by David Verne. Throughout history, city-states have managed to generate great wealth using trade. During the medieval ages, the Italian city-states wealth baffled traditional feudal monarchies who didn't understand that land isn't always the basis of wealth and that free markets are the best option. In modern times, one of the few completely independent city-states was the Southeast Asian country of Singapore. As the second freest country in the world, Singapore had followed in the path of many city-states before it and is renowned for a prosperous country with a fiscally responsible government that has regularly budget surpluses instead of the deficit so common in developed nations. And I, I, I think it's a true statement, common in developed nations, but we shouldn't take that to mean that Singapore is not a developed nation. It's an incredibly developed nation. Um, this makes me think of what's going on right now. Trump's going to put tariffs on steel from Germany and the world's going to end. Okay, hold on a second. I would just like all of those people that are so upset about this. And I'm not saying we should or should. I'm just saying if you want to make a decision on something, you should really get, like, all the facts. What's the If the United States exports steel to Germany, some type of steel Germany doesn't make or needs from us, what's the tariff on it? Now, the answer is I don't know. And I don't know because Google is so crammed full of bullshit about people freaking out about the current uh, tariffs that I only could take so much time this morning and like after three pages of going through Google results going all of this is about the U.S. tariffs on, on Germany and nowhere can I find what the tariff on U.S. steel into Germany is. Um, I gave up. I did find that things like clothing and textiles and stuff like that are taxed at like 17% and a, a ton of consumer goods that go into the European Union from countries like the United States are taxed at somewhere between 17 and 19%. Not all, but a ton of stuff. And then in general, we have zero tariff on the stuff that they import here. So, you know, I'm not the guy that always runs around back in Trump. He says some really stupid shit. His latest uh, four-pillar drug policy is like, did you dig up Nancy Reagan and have one of her psychics do a seance and give you the idea for the drug commercials and telling them not to, and, I mean, kids, and it just sounds like 1980 drug war all over again, really. Um, and I called up uh, China, and I told them not to send it, and I called up Mexico, and I told them not to send it. Really? Yeah, that'll work. Um, so I'm not a big Trump defender, but when it comes to the tariffs thing here, I don't think what Trump really wants is a tariff on, you know, Mexican and German and Canadian steel. I think what he wants is a lessening of their tariffs on our, on our goods. And like, well, we're going to retaliate. Well, maybe we're retaliating, you know. And I think like there is a place here for what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if you're going to say that like, well, any of your stuff that comes into my place is going to be subject to a tariff, I, I, I don't think you can be surprised that the other country says, well, okay, the same for us. On the other hand, not tariffing. In fact, we have very minimal tariffs in this country across the board with everybody. Has made this country very, very profitable and very, very successful. And I think we need to think about what exactly we're tariffing if we're going to do tariffing at all. It's one thing to tariff a car. It's another t t thing to tariff steel. When, when, when steel comes into a country and is used to make a car by a company existing in the United States. We, we, we need to think about that a little bit deeper. The other side of it, again, I'm not a big defender of Trump, but when he says that it's important that we preserve the capacity to produce steel and aluminum and other metals within the borders of the United States for national security issues, folks, he's not wrong. 
He's not wrong. Not about that. He's wrong about so much shit. He's not wrong about that. And Canada's like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we have such a great history of being allies. You know, what if, if we're just, what if, what if you get, I mean, Canada, I'm not sure Canada's going to be an ally of the United States in 20 years. And nothing against Canadian people. But I think the Canadian government seems to be against the Canadian people. Uh, it it seems like it's turning into a little Islam up there. They're, they're, they're punishing people for free speech under the boundaries of hate speech. They have no respect for people's rights to own a gun. Um, and, and with some of the things that are going on in Canada, can we rely on the fact that 20 years from now they'll be an ally? Regardless of whether they are today? Can we rely on the fact that there could be some conflict in the world somewhere that Canada might not side with somebody else that would side against us? I think a country being able to produce things like steel and, and refine iron or into steel and things like that is a national security issue, even if I disagree with many things that are done with it. So it's interesting. These things don't really change, do they? All the way back to 137, here we are in 2018, tariffs and how countries deal with each other. It's my thoughts. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your stuff today. I want to start out with the uh, the issue with the snake question. So a guy wrote in on Tuesday, he had king snakes on his property, a big one he saw out in the backyard somewhere in the distance where it didn't really bother him, and a, a little one he saw go up under his deck. And these are speckled king snakes in the state of Louisiana. And he's worried about his dog and his kids because of the king snakes, which pose absolutely no risk at all, infinity to your dogs, your kids, your wife, your house. If you say it's afraid it might get in the house, it's possible but not probable. Snakes really don't like to go in houses. Uh, it's not that they won't, it's that they usually just don't. Um, and it was up under his deck, and I said it would either, the baby, this little baby king snake would either leave uh, that next night, or it would stay up under there if there was something for it to eat. And if there was anything for it to eat under there, you might want to leave it there because it's probably like a little nest of mouses or rats or something. And if you did get rid of all these king snakes, you would be given your location in Louisiana, probably contacting me in a few months or years with a problem with things like pygmy rattlesnakes and copperheads on your property and wanting to know how to get rid of them. And that if I had a problem with something like that on my property, I would literally go out and purchase king snakes by the bushel and release them onto my property because they are the, the, the primary predator of the, uh, the various pit vipers in our country. So since you don't like snakes to begin with, removing a snake that actually eats the snakes that actually are a danger is probably not a good idea. Well, somebody got really ass-hurt about this, and it wasn't the guy that asked the question. And it was a guy that's actually made like 40 or 50 comments on the blog that were generally pretty decent comments. But he got all whiny and bitchy like a little baby because it was an insensitive answer. And his response was, what the hell? My my wife, my children, and my dogs are more important than any snake. B but it's like you're ignoring reality because you want to, because maybe you're afraid like a child of a snake for no rational reason. The snake represents no danger to your dog, your child, your wife, or yourself. It doesn't. It just, it can't. There's nothing that it can do, and your dog is more likely to hurt your child while playing with your child than the snake is to do any significant injury to you. If you, if you take a king snake, a large one, let's say four and a half, five feet, it's about as big as speckles. Speckles might push six feet in rare instances. And you grab a speckled king snake by the middle of its body, and it rears back and bites into you. It, it, it literally doesn't hurt. 
I know because I was bit by one on the hand that was actually a tame, and there's no such thing as a tame snake, uh, that just for some reason decided to, to latch onto my, my, my hand and just start chewing on it. And I wasn't looking at it when it did it, and it felt like somebody was kind of scratching me, and I looked down. And then there's this, this, this speckled king basically trying to eat my hand. And he's not being aggressive. He, he's, I had handled uh, uh, other snakes, and I had not cleaned my hands, and the snake was probably getting close to pre-molt. It needed to eat. It got the scent, the way that my hand was moving or whatever, and it just went into what we call an SFE, or stupid feeding error. That means the snake handler, me, did something wrong, so the snake tried to feed on me. Because snakes only bite for defense or feeding. So this snake is literally chewing in my hand, and I, I just took the snake off and put it back in its thing, and I looked at it, and there were three different places where it had gotten a grip. Three, there, were, there were clear you know, marks of the teeth, and there was zero pain at all, and it was actually kind of crazy how much it bled. And I don't mean like, you know, pulsing blood. I mean just like this, like it would seep blood and you'd wipe it off and it would seep blood again and you'd wipe it off. And it would see, and it took a while to stop, but it was no big deal. And it went away and it looked like a little, you know, scab mark on my hand for a couple days and it was no big deal. By the way, I was 12 and I didn't cry like a baby. Okay, you big wuss. It didn't hurt. So if your kid grabbed the snake and it bit him on the arm, it still would be no big deal. But if you end up with a pygmy rattlesnake in one of your flower pots and your wife reaches in to water it and gets bit in the finger, she's going to the ER and possibly ending up in ICU. So what do you prefer? Well, that was my basic answer. But this guy got all ass hurt about it. And he also got all ass hurt about something. I, apparently I said something, and I, I don't even remember the context, but I think it was about how a king snake would crush a copperhead. And I said something like, like a... Like a like a fat Italian housewife on a grape or something like that. And apparently that pissed him off too and he insulted my weight. <laughs> you know, dude, grow up. And guys, I share this once with you once in a while. So if you ever see me being short with somebody, you know, maybe I dealt with five people like this in a row and maybe I'm short with somebody that I shouldn't be and I'm sorry. You know, but this is just childish and this is, this is, I don't like what I heard so I'm going to have an outrage. And the reason I bring it up, this is the same shit going on with all the stuff in America today. The, the people losing their minds over players kneeling in the NFL. 99% of them have not watched a football game in 10 years. And if they had watched a football game 10 years ago, they'd know that this didn't used to be an issue because the players weren't even on the field in 2009 when the military threw money at the government to bring them out because recruiting had slowed. Right, The people losing their minds about Roseanne have never watched a freaking episode of it. She's a fat, disgusting slob. I'm sorry. She's an obnoxious pig. you know. And she was a, a, a big-time pusher for things like Occupy Wall Street just a few years ago. But all of a sudden, she's a conservative hero because Trump. And, and people are losing their minds. They don't really care. Don't really watch. It's, it's amazing. And it, it's because I heard something I didn't like. I, I have a, a duty to be outraged and throw my ass in the air about it. You know you're going to hear things you don't like. But a lot of times what you hear you don't like is the truth. And, and and I am not out like doing like Save the Snakes Foundation or something or Save the Snakes.org and let's have Barry White be our mascot from Whacking Day Simpsons episode or whatever like that, right? I understand. But if you if you actually are concerned with venomous reptiles and you have a venomous reptile killing and consuming predator on your property that's in the form of a snake, then why would you get rid of it? It just doesn't make any sense. And it's amazing, those same people, they have no problems with lizards. Lizards are just snakes with legs and ears. I mean, come on. 
Let's move along. Let's take your first call. This one is on growing something in your office. And I like the idea, but I don't like the idea. You'll see why in just a second. Hi, Jack. I got a crazy one for you. Something, something off the wall. I've got a space in my office, and I want to grow something in my office. Uh, I'm thinking muscadine, maybe a little vine action. Uh, it can be hydroponically. It can be in dirt. Uh, I have some artificial light. I, I, I have that King Bow, uh, 45 watt light that I could bring in and set up and have it run. What, what's some ideas? What can I grow indoors in, a, in my office? Um, aromatic potentially, you know, I want people walking to my office and say, what the hell are you doing? And I'm going to tell them exactly what I'm doing. I'm growing food or I'm growing this plant in my office, and you can do the same. I'm kind of that guy anyhow. Thank you, Jack. Have a good one. I think toward the end you start heading in the right direction with aromatic. Um, do not try to grow a muscadine grapevine indoors. With a 45 watt Kingbow light, you 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 would probably need oh a couple 600 watt uh, intense grow lights with a robotic arm that moves them back and forth to uh, make them cover greater surface area. Uh, mature muscadine trained properly. If you leave it to itself, I mean you can you can end up with a 50 foot oak tree with muscadines on the top of it. But trained properly will will be trained up to about four to five feet above the ground, and then we'll have two main uh, branches that will go out in opposite directions, about eight foot each, spanning 16 feet. Um, they're big plants. They're heavy feeders. They need a lot of soil. They need a large root mass. There's not a, no just and it would never produce because you need two of them for cross pollination. So don't no that's that is crazy. Your the word you picked was accurate. It's crazy. Don't even think about it. Um, whether you're doing soil or hydroponic is up to you. Hydroponic is great for indoor systems because it lets you specifically adapt pH and nutrient requirements to exactly what you want. And, and you know, you're not talking about a, a large scale system here. So, you know, a pump that you would never even hear over the sound of the air conditioner would run it. Um, for you just fine. I have a friend named Brent up in Arkansas who has a huge window in his corner office, and he has tons of hydroponic stuff. Just you know, basically not even. I don't even think it's recirculating. Uh, just in his window, and he's got tomatoes and cucumbers and all kinds of stuff. But you know, he has that window asset. That doesn't sound like you do. If you want people to walk in and go, "What's that?" I, I would stick to things that require minimal light, minimal nutrient. Uh, and do well in those types of environments, and and then have a an impact on people. And when you walk in, you go, "Wow, that's that's I, I smell something." And and that would be things like basil, rosemary, and thyme, your herbs. I think that's probably your best bet. Maybe a little salad green action here and there going on, you know. And being able, to, like, if you have your daily lunch salad, be able to take a couple sprigs of rosemary and and, and dry them out. And because rosemary is much better as a dried herb to me. Uh, but some fresh thyme and fresh basil, you know, and maybe a little trimming of arugula. You're probably going to need more than one light to do anything substantial. You know, you're probably looking at building an array of at least three of them. And those 45-watt kingbows, they're great for what they are, 
but I mean absolutely no more than a foot above the leaves, and and that's a little bit high. They're they're really great for starting plants. They're not the best grow light that there is, though they're pretty decent for that. You would probably be better off either building or buying some sort of a rack system and going with T5s or T8s. If you go with T5s, you can kind of keep them up at like that one foot or more distance. T8s, you're going to have to bring them down at a much lower, you're going to need a much, you know, something that has the ability to raise and lower those lights. And, and that's kind of what I would look at doing is more of a rack-based system, whether it's soil-based or hydroponics uh, with T8s or T5s. I, I think that's probably your best bet. It'll cost a little more in the beginning, but your results will more than make up for the difference in cost. That's what I would do. Anybody else that's done stuff like this, has any ideas, any thoughts, any methodologies, love to hear from you. But I would stick to stuff that produces a leaf crop and it has good smells. If, if you want an impact when people walk in, you know, sitting under those lights and you've got fresh basil and you've got fresh rosemary. Now, rosemary, you're going to have to prune a lot because it's a big plant. But you can keep it pruned more like a, you basically have like a, a rosemary bonsai, bonsai tree, right? Uh, so that would be the way to think of that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is MT Brand from Southeast Texas. I was wondering if you could give us an update on the new things you were growing this year, more specifically the trombone zucchini. I was wondering if you had any problems with that, if the vine borers um, affected that at all. I grew some new pumpkins this year, and they decimated those, but my wife grew some Seminole pumpkins, and they have yet. They've tried to attack it, but it has not killed it as of yet. Thanks, and hope to hear from you. Bye. So I'm actually growing way less new stuff than I uh, planned on because I got behind the curve with putting in all these new beds as part of this new system. Uh, and then I had my uh, my episode this week. I, I had hoped to, uh, by now, have these two new 4x4 four four beds uh, up and running. I've got some freaking sunchokes I really want to plant, and I, I really can't do it till I get this plumbing done. Uh, and I don't know if that's going to happen. And uh, so we'll we'll see. Um, as far as the trail machine of zucchini, I did not grow any of that this year. I don't really have the space for a vining uh, plant like that. Um, I did grow quite a bit of butternut this year. It's doing... Here and there, well, and then not so well. Like the stuff that's out in the berms, we had this you know, drought come in like usual, and what started out strong has now waned because I don't water that stuff. It either makes it or it doesn't. Um, you know, I water it enough to keep things from dying, the trees basically, so I don't give it any kind of regular water. Uh, I do have some butternuts that are in some wicking beds and one in an ebb and flow bed, and those are doing really good. And if you want a squash that vine borers will not bother, notice I did not say squash bugs wouldn't bother, but vine borers will, are, just won't even mess with it. It's butternut. Good old Waltham butternut. You don't need a special variety of it. Stuff's been around forever, one that everybody sells, that everybody grows. Uh, those vines are so thick and dense that they're just useless to a vine borer. Everything a vine borer wants is not in there. If you think about a typical squash vine, when you cut it open, it's a very soft... Uh, light fibrous wet uh, environment and that's a perfect place for that little grub to grow up into his evil demon spawn self adult moth looking half moth half wasp looking evil being that makes more of them um, the inside of a butternut squash vine it looks like a stick a hard dry stick 
It's just an inhospitable environment. Now, squash bugs can still be an issue. They get on your leaves and they do all the things that they do, and they are what they are, and there's only so much you can do about that. But uh, that's, that, that's where I would recommend you go there. Some things I'm growing this year that seem to be doing pretty well but aren't really producing yet, I'm growing two different oriental gourds that are supposed to be good edibles. Uh, when they're young, one is called hairy gourd and one is called white flowering gourd. And those seem to be doing okay. The truth is, because I started plants before I got the beds ready and I didn't get the beds done, I crammed a lot more into some of my beds than I should have. And because of that, I've got overcrowding and some stuff's not doing as good as it should. I'm growing some uh, oriental cucumbers. I don't remember the name, but they were in the show that I did about, um, that I did about, you know, the un, you know, new stuff that I did earlier this spring. And they're fantastic. We did a salad last night uh, where we used one of these, I mean, this thing. It's like I used half a cucumber to make a salad for Dorothy and I. And that was even with scraping the seeds out. And what I did was, uh, so I took half the cucumber, scraped the seeds out of it, and sliced it like super thin, like you're going to do like a Greek salad. And then I had a lemon boy tomato. That's another plant I've never grown before. Those are doing pretty well. And I super thin sliced the, uh, the lemon boy tomato, peppermint chard. That's a new plant for me this year. I went and got a few leaves of that, and I separated the leaves from the stems and uh, sliced the leaves up. And then I sliced the stems kind of so they look like red onions because I don't really like red onions, but, the, you know, they kind of look good in a salad that way. And, and that was pretty much it. Oh, we got some, ba some fresh basil, of course, and some uh, mint and mixed that together and put that in a bowl and just left it in the refrigerator. And uh, we had that as a side salad with dinner. That was fantastic. Dinner, not really to your question, but i got to talk about this. So we got these huge, thick um, pork chops from Butcher Box, Butcher Box this time around, and uh, just awesome pastured pork chops, and they're about an inch and a quarter thick. Real nice fat cap on them, bone on one side. And Dorothy says, "Don't you think these would be good with apples?" And I'm like, "Woman, if you procure me apples when you take the kids to get the, to their parents, I will make that happen." So I took those pork chops. I made a seasoning up. The po there's a post on Facebook with the, uh, the the spice rub that I made, but it has like coriander and salt and pepper and garlic and orange zest and chili powder and cumin. I think everything that was in it and uh, two parts salt, two parts pepper, one part everything else. I just said, coated it with that, let it sit for like an hour. So it really you know made friends with the pork. Got some some uh, lard, nice and hot. Hit that on both sides, seared it four minutes each side, set it aside. It was only up to about 100 degrees at that point, so nowhere near done. Shallots and butter into the skillet, uh, then followed by garlic. Shallots first so the garlic doesn't burn and scorch. And then two apples sliced thin went in there, cooked those down a little bit, pushed everything to the side, deglazed a little white wine, put the pork back in, nestled the pork in with those apples and shallots into the oven for 425 degrees for 10 minutes on a, a carbon steel skillet. Did a side of uh, asparagus just done with salt and pepper. Oh, God, what a meal. That was fantastic. But I'll tell you what, the reason I bring it up, that little side salad. And it was just a little, it wasn't like a big dish. You know, it was just a little side salad on the side, a little handful of salad. The, the bitterness of the shard greens, the, the, uh, the cooling of the cucumber and the mint, the uh, anise kind of impact of the basil, and then the, uh, the, the, the tartness of the lemon, uh, the lemon tomato. That lemon boy yellow tomato. It tastes like a regular tomato, even though it's yellow. Uh, but it has a little bit of a sourness to it. I don't think that's really because it's yellow. It just does. And uh, that all just blended, man. Fantastic. So a lot of things are going really well. Uh, as far as some of the fruits and stuff, I'm going to save that for a question we have later by JR. 
Um, but mostly what I'm doing well with this year are my peppers, and uh, peppers are something I always do well with. And I'm, I'm growing um, whatever the brand was from Gurney's that I recommended, the giant jalapenos. These things are freaking massive, man. I'll, I am uh, kind of blown away with the way the peppers are producing. It is so hot here right now. I have that new aquaponic system in with two ebb and flow beds. I go out in the middle of the day, and plants that are sitting in an ebb and flow bed are collapsed in the heat. I need to get a pergola up over that. I, I got a lot of work to do. Remember, I spent years kind of throwing everything at the perennials and kind of ignoring the annuals, and now I'm trying to catch back up. But uh, we're, we're producing a lot, especially this time of year again, like I said, peppers. A lot of stuff like our tomatoes are starting now to get blighted. And so we're picking tomatoes as fast as we can, and then like the blight is just following the vines, uh, cloning and replanting, etc. Sweet Million was a tomato that I tried this year, a hybrid. Man, they, it ain't a million, but it's like a thousand. They, they're just little tomatoes, but they're everywhere. And then we did a uh, a chocolate sprinkles. Is another. It's like an. Uh, I think it's actually even though it's a it's a. A hybrid, it's basically based on uh, an heirloom uh, known as Purple Cherokee is what it really makes me think of. Uh, these, this chocolate sprinkles uh, tomato, it is, they're a deep, dark fruit, like almost a purple with like a, a black speckling through them. And then the tops never fully ripen. They stay kind of a little bit green right at the top, a little greenish yellow. Those things are like flavor bombs. And those are, they're still, they've got blight. But they're holding up probably better than anything else. The, the stuff that I found this year that's doing the best with the blight, Husky Cherry Red, the Chocolate Sprinkles, and Lemon Boy. And uh, Sweet Millie's doing okay, but it's, it's, the blight's really starting to get to it now. Um, my beans, I have uh, red Chinese uh, bean, noodle beans. Those are doing really good, but they have pretty bad leaf rust. And I'm not sure why that is this year, and I haven't had time to fix it. And you know, I'm coming up on a vacation now, and this is our this is our suck, man. This is our Darth. Uh, we, you know, the next three months are the worst time of the year. I hate this more than I hate winter. I can grow shit in winter. I mean, I can grow shit indoors. I can grow shit in the greenhouse. I can throw a little bit of heat on it. You know, I I, I can switch to broccoli and cold crops and kale. This next three months, if it wasn't for aquaponics, this is why I quit. You know, the reason I have food now is because of aquaponics. I gave up. This this piece of property I live on, the shallow soils, the heat, the sun baking, everything else, it's just it's just brutal. Um, and that's why I'm even thinking like some of my fruit stuff, and I'll talk about it when I get to JR's question, um, I'm gonna move more to earlier fruits. Because they you know, the plants survive through the year just fine, but boy, if they haven't produced by now, they're they're hurting. Uh, let's take another one. This one on uh, me being a jerk. And this, this call made my day. I cannot tell you how much I love calls like this. Yeah, Jack. This is Mike from Louisiana. And you're a real jerk. Details. I paid off all of my debt, comma. Have all kinds of food stored up, comma. And now I have all this extra money in an emergency fund. And my truck needs about $3,700 worth of repairs. And guess what? Yeah, because of you, I did have to put it on credit or finance it or borrow it. I actually had the money to pay for it. You're a real jerk, dude. Thanks a lot. You know, for all of my busting on Dave Ramsey, I've always said that uh, 
He gives the best debt elimination advice on the planet, and it's the advice that I have repeated on this show many times and probably the advice uh, that Mike followed there. So borrowing something for uh, from, from Dave Ramsey. Mike, I'm going to play something for you right now. You know, 10 years ago when I started this show, Almost 10. We're real close, aren't we? We're uh, 13 days away from an actual 10-year anniversary date, uh, not the celebration. More on that toward the end. Um, 10 years ago when I started this show, I, I, I pushed this concept of debt elimination as one of my primary tenets of modern survival philosophy. It started with a 10-tenant philosophy and within a year had grown to 12 tenets, which have remained the same 12 tenets I've been teaching now for all that time. And I put a lot of effort into the debt elimination, and I would get on the air, and I would I was in my car, and I was in those amped up days, and I you got to get out of debt. Now, people thought I was a little bit crazy, and you know, it doesn't matter because the world's going to end, and you're going to feel stupid, and I'm not worried about paying my credit card debt because, you know, when the, when the shit hits the fan, it ain't going to matter anyway. And I'm like, that's not the way to live. And I, that doesn't follow the prime directive here, which is living the better life, you know, if times get tough or even if they don't either. Um, but what got me was in this world of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, preparedness, survivalism, all of the overlapping places, homesteading, etc., there is a common thing that even when people disagree that, that, that always comes up, freedom. Freedom is what it's all about. I want to be free. I don't want the government telling me what to do. I don't want somebody in my business. I want my rights. I want my freedoms. And I, I, I completely agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. But what would you think of a man who uh, a conflict came, and there was a side that represented freedom and a side that represented oppression, at least in his mind. And He put on his armor and picked up his sword, metaphorically or accurately, depending on the time and, and, and date of the situation going on. Maybe he was picking up that M16 or M4 now, or that M60 or that saw or whatever it is. And He went and fought, and he watched his buddies die, and he sacrificed and did without. Maybe he was injured, and eventually the, the war ended, and he went home to the freedom he had fought for. And then the first thing he did when he got home is he went and found someone to be his master and willingly put on his chains and became a slave by choice. I think you would think that something must have been damaged in that man's mind for him to care so much for freedom in one breath and then in the next submit to servitude and slavery and chains. Well, it amazes me how many people blow out of their ass constantly about how free they want to be and they submit to the slavery chains of debt Mike, good on you and if that makes me a jerk that makes me one happy jerk thank you and thank you for selling that one so well that was the best sold uh, sarcastic jack your jerk, jerk call that's come in in almost a decade man thanks man you made my day have a good one and let's take another one this one on uh, weed eaters and lawns Jack this is Zach from East Texas. Just had a quick question regarding uh, just trying to find a recommendation for a good weed eater. Uh, background is my old crappy weed eater is about to crap out on me. It might make it through the summer, so I'm just going ahead and looking around and seeing uh, what my options are for 
getting a new one for next year. Hopefully, mine will last that long. And, you know, while I've got you on the line, just uh, if you have any thoughts on, you know, general lawn care for someone who, you know, not too much interested in the true green Kim Lawn look, but I definitely don't want a yard full of, you know, weeds in my front. That's for the backyard. Anyway, have a good weekend. Well, let's start out with the weed eater, and I'll give you an honest answer of what I own, and I'll give you the but uh, that goes along with it. So in in my opinion, when you look at uh, any type of power tools like this, weed eaters, chainsaws, these small motors, um, the best thing that's made today is the commercial-level products from steel. I also think it's overkill for most people for a backyard weed eater. I, I I just don't think it's necessary. And so kind of my, like, steel light, I guess, that I've come down on it, making really good motors, providing really good service, and making really good overall products is Husqvarna. And so what I did is I was like, you know, I'm going to be honest. I didn't put a a massive amount of weed-eating research in when I picked mine like I do with some things I buy. But, you know, I looked around, and I, I settled on Husqvarna, and I looked at some reviews, and I picked up a weed eater, and I use a weed eater four times a year, if that, for very specific spot areas. I might have to do a little bit more of it now um, because the ducks are gone, but, I mean, I don't heavily use weed eaters. But where I do use them, it's heavy, uh, heavy growth, and and I need something that I know is going to work and power through. So the the weed eater that I own is the Husqvarna 128LD, and I really like it. It's always worked for me. It always starts right up. It's it's a good weed eater. It's about 200 bucks. Um, if you're going to spend less than that, I don't know that it matters much. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to spend $120, $130, 75 bucks on a weed eater, I think if you, whatever you buy, you're going to be pretty much in about the same boat, same level of, 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 of quality. Um, you know, your good, your good stuff like Husqvarna, McCullough, Steel, you're moving up to that $180 plus dollar range. And I think anywhere in that in that area, you're going to find a, a pretty good piece of equipment. Now that said, I hate, 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 hate with an effing passion winding string on weed eaters. Uh, I bought a power head for mine by a company called Max Power. It's the Max Power Prevo trim head, and it uses .93 strings, and they just they go. That's a very thick string, and they go through and they're bent. If you make your own, you got to bend them with kind of a pair of pliers, but it's no big deal to kind of put a kink in them so they'll stay, you know, nicely bent for you in the little inserts. And it uses three double things of them, so you basically got six strings out there. And man, that thing—if it won't cut it, you shouldn't be cutting it with a weed eater. It is, and the Husqvarna has enough power to make that head work the way it's supposed to. And so I have a link to both of those in the show notes for you today. That's what I'd recommend if you're going to go lower cost than that. You know, buy what's on sale at Home Depot or Lowe's. I mean, I mean seriously. I mean, and, and I'm not putting it down because you could buy that in my last five, six years. I, I mean, I don't know. I just think that Husqvarna makes really good equipment. That that's been my. I have a Husqvarna tractor. I have a Husqvarna chainsaw. I have a Husqvarna weed eater. I kind of I'm like with Husqvarna kind of the way I'm with Dewalt, but I'm a little bit more loyal to Husqvarna right now than I am Dewalt for reasons I won't go into today. Um, on on lawn care. Uh, this is a, maybe a little bit of a weak area for me because I don't care. <laughs> uh, it, 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 as long as it's green, I'm good, and whatever happens, happens. I, I would say that one of the big things with lawns 
that I think helps is if we can define what weed means. Does weed mean clover? Because if weed doesn't mean clover, if you're okay with clover, I would put as many different clover types in your lawn as possible. Because they, they only grow so tall. They mix in with grass really well. They kind of support each other. They help choke out weeds, which grass is really good at choking out weeds as well. And they're just awesome for your lawn. They're awesome for pollinators everything else. Then I'm going to give you two resources, but the biggest upshot of both of them, in addition to organic fertilization, is going to be mow high and mow less frequently. And that's my mower has never had the deck lower than the highest spot ever infinity since it's been on my property. The day it got here, when I fired it up the first time, I raised the mower deck all the way up, and it's never gone back down. I take that back. There is the one spot that was really bad with um, those stupid sand briars, and I think I've lowered it on there a couple times just to chew them up so that people didn't get their feet any more tore up than they had to. But as far as general mowing, it's always been on the highest point of the deck. That does a couple things. One of the big things it does with grass is grass, grass reproduces from something called swards, which basically means it spiders out, and it produces new grass and spreads, either in runners or in more of a radial pattern. And when you cut it high, it puts its energy into making more grass. And when you cut it low, it puts its energy into growing back. So you get thicker and denser grass by cutting higher. The resources. Paul Wheaton has one of the best articles on the Internet on this type of lawn care. He calls it organic lawn care. It's really more permaculture lawn care. He calls it organic lawn care because, like me, Paul knows how search engines work, and he knows more people look for organic lawn care than permaculture lawn care. So, um, But it is great, and it, it, it is, you know, it, it's watering less frequently but doing some watering. It's raking out certain areas that are compacted. It's increasing the diversity in the lawn itself. It's using organic fertilizer, and it's mowing high. Uh, Howard Garrett has a very brief article that gives specific uh, mowing height recommendations based on grass types, and he'd know. I mean, he is the man. He's been doing this since before I was out of high school, right? I mean, that to put it in perspective, um, also known as the dirt doctor. I, I want I do want to say something because I've heard from some of y'all that refer to Howard Garrett as Dr. Garrett. Howard Garrett is not a doctor in the sense of an MD or a PhD or a DSC. Uh, he is Howard Garrett, and he calls himself the Dirt Doctor, like Michael Jordan calls himself the Bee Whisperer, just to be clear on that, because I don't think he needs to mislead anybody, and I don't want to mislead anybody on his behalf. Um, but he has a book on organic lawn care that if you really want to take your, your lawn to kind of the ultimate level using organic pro uh, products, uh, using things like rock minerals and, and the Garrett juice and, and everything else, They'd probably be worth the 18 bucks to invest, and in. I have a link to that as well on, on today's show notes. But kind of there's my upshot. In the end, mow less, mow higher, water, but not on a regular schedule. Use organic fertilizers. That's too late for, for the summer. You want to run your organic fertilization program in the spring and the fall. Not in the, it, right now, you will burn shit up or you will do nothing and waste your money. Those are your two choices. So don't do it right now. Get through it right now. Uh, but you can start the higher mowing right away. And that will make a big difference because there is nothing other than maybe field bindweed 
that chokes shit out the way that grass chokes shit out. Here's another thing that I personally feel. I don't have a problem with crabgrass. It's a grass. It's a grass. It looks like grass. You mow it. If you don't mow it short, it all blends together. It all looks the same. Diversity is good. But I know what you're saying with like big, tall, different weeds and stuff like that. Again, get that grass thicker. If you're okay with it, get some clover into the mix. I don't know your climate, so I don't know if it's worth doing right now. But, you know, some, some New Zealand or Dutch white clover would be a great addition. Um, way more than they say if you live in a harsh climate for clover where you got to find, you know, like select the clover that's tough. Uh, you know, like, oh, I don't know, five pounds of clover seed uh, to a typical, you know, quarter acre yard which is way more than that they would recommend, but it won't hurt nothing. It won't hurt nothing at all. Uh, and it, a clover lawn to me is is preferable to an all grass lawn. Uh, it is much more resilient. It chokes out weeds much better. It needs less mowing because it's only going to grow so tall, and it grows really uniform, so it doesn't get kind of that lumpy, untidy look that some people don't want their front yard to have. Uh, let's take another one. Hey Jack, Jr. from Oklahoma, still stuck out in Albuquerque. What are you homebrewing these days? So details. What spring prospects on your property have you motivated for brewing once those things ripen later later in the year? Second part of the question. If you were going to become a legal home distiller somewhere between 3 to 10-gallon batch range, what type of still would you choose? Thanks, Jack. So I guess um, mead making is closer to venting than brewing, and I, I really haven't made beer for a very long time, and I don't know when I will again. Um, I have some hops in the oven and flow beds. If they come up, I'll probably make a batch of beer this year, just you know, a, a simple uh, extract batch just because I'll have my own hops. Uh, otherwise, uh, I've gone more to mead making, and I haven't actually made mead this spring. Uh, I have a bunch of stuff in the freezer that I've been collecting. I'm going to go on like a mad mead-making uh, mania when I get back from Florida. Uh, that way we'll have plenty of uh, fresh meads for the uh, the fall workshop. Uh, I am going out uh, every few days now and picking different plums, and I'm really not separating them. Uh, but I've got a lot of plum this year, so I'm going to do a lot of plum mead. I got enough goomies. Uh, first time ever I got enough goomy to do a batch of goomy mead. Uh, I thought my Hanson's uh, bush cherries were going to do really well this year. I've got one with some ripe fruit on it. I need to take a property walk this weekend and see if any of the other ones. I'm going to try to get enough to do a batch of Hanson's bush cherry mead. That was one people really, really liked. That plant seems like it's going to do really well here, and then it doesn't. And then it seems like it's going to do really well, and then it doesn't. And then it gets a bunch of berries one year, and then it is done for a while. And So we'll see how that works out. Um I have peach, two peach trees I've lost limbs on because I didn't prune them the way I should have. And, but they're alive and they're covered in peaches. I'm just, le I'm leaving the limbs there. And so probably I'm going to make a ton of peach mead and I might make some of the uh, peach fuel that falls into your mouth by accident at times that we'll talk about here in the future. Um, apricots, uh, my plain old man apricot tree, as Nick Ferguson named it, finally produced for me this year. Uh, and I got a couple apricots I ate, and they were really good, but I, I got about, you know, four cups of sliced apricot in the freezer, and I'm going to be doing an apricot mead. That should be awesome. Later in the year, uh, it looks like we're going to have a pretty decent persimmon harvest. You know, I'll probably get a dozen or so persimmons. Uh, my persimmon trees are still quite young. 
But uh, I only need about three to four to make a batch of meat. So I'll probably make a gallon or two of persimmon mead this year. And I have always been blown away by persimmon mead. And some of my Asian pears are doing really good. So we'll probably do the pear ginger mead as well this year. So those are all things. I, I had a pretty good uh, mulberry harvest. Again, with the dry season coming in early, uh, not quite what I expected, but definitely we'll do at least a batch or two of uh, mulberry meat. Actually, some of my mulberry trees like now look pretty bad and need some pretty aggressive pruning and just allowed to come back and, and, and kind of put on some regrowth. Uh, I got almost nothing from the white mulberries this year. Jujubes should do really well. They don't really give a – they're like honey badgers. They don't give a damn about this heat, so we should do jujube as well. Uh, on another note – Uh, on distilling, I would recommend the electric eight and a half gallon milk can still from Mile High Distilling, and I wouldn't recommend anything else unless you want a bigger still. And it's going to set you back about six hundred bucks, and it's totally worth every penny. And I love everything about it. It comes with a a column. So it can be run either as a column still or a uh, or as a pot still. With this, it's a dual purpose column, and so it's this big long tower that sits up on top of the can that all of your distillate goes through and condenses and comes down out the other side. And it's got a place for a hose to go in and out through this water jacket that cools the condenser and let make sure your distillate can condense back down into liquid and come out as your fuel that you might accidentally get in your mouth. And uh, the way that it works, though, is you, you always put something in that column, but you take a little bit of copper, like copper uh, stuff like copper sponge stuff, copper uh, mesh is what I'm talking about, very loose amount in there, and it runs like a pot still. So you're going to put out you know, a distillate in the neighborhood of 120 to 140 proof um, on the first run. And that's going to leave behind some flavors, and that's going to be making your more conventional corn whiskeys and shines. And you know, you'll probably dilute that down to a hundred to eighty proof somewhere in there, and then age it however you choose, or, or just you know, use it right away when it accidentally falls in your mouth. Uh, and then, if you just want to produce distillate, basically Everclear, you pack it with a combination of copper and rasher rings, and rasher rings are these little ceramic rings. And you pack it tightly. And what this does is when that distillate's coming up, it constantly gets knocked back down, knocked back down, knocked back down, knocked back down. And it it put, puts out about 192 proof on the first run, which is it's, it's basically pure ethanol at that point. So it's the best if you're making fuel that accidentally spills into a place where fuel goes. Okay, um, And it uses a water heater element to heat. The mash, and I'm going to tell you what I like about this. They weld a fitting into the can that's a couple inches above the bottom, and then that electric water heater element goes into there, and it, it bolts on. It doesn't leak. It works exactly the way it's supposed to do. Well, it's suspended like a water heater element would be, so it's not heating from the bottom like a hot plate or a propane burner. So some of the mashes you might choose to make for the fuel that you might spill into your mouth might be something like a sweet feed mash, which, by the way, makes a very kind of a rummy, sweet shine that's really nice and would age beautifully on some oak, I'm just saying, uh, and make a hell of a dark rum. 
I'm just saying, okay? And uh, Or maybe a light toasted oak can make a hell of a golden rum. Well, no matter what you do, some of the solids are going to get in there, and if you're heating long enough to do a full distillation from the bottom, you're going to get some char and nasty, sticky, icky gick on the bottom of your still. The milk can still with the water heater element, it doesn't happen. When you pull that heater element out, unless you did something really stupid, it's clean and it's easy to clean. And you don't end up with burnt on, crusted up nastiness on the bottom of the still ever. And I would say that it does take a little while to heat up. It usually takes about an hour to start running. You could accelerate that even with a modest propane burner underneath it uh, just to help it get to temperature. But once it gets to temperature, you can shut that off. And what I love about that still It's got a little red stat that goes with it where you set higher and lower. And when you get it dialed in where you want it, and you get the water flow the way you want the water flow through it, you don't do shit. You sit back, relax, and have a home brew or a home fuel, and let it do its thing. until it, And you just keep monitoring what it's putting out until it's kind of done its run. And then shut it down, and then be very careful because the stuff is very, very hot. And you got a big giant steaming hot thing of sugary goo to get rid of, but man, it's fantastic. I wouldn't recommend anything else. And I talked to Mile High Distilling about two years ago over and over again about doing a discount for members of the MSB. And I got, yeah, we want to, 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 yeah, you want to, but no freaking discount code. So, Maybe if you guys rattle that cage for me a little bit, maybe it'll remind them, and maybe they'll want to do business with us, and you know, maybe I could get that for you. Uh, on another note, there's a thing they sell, I think it's about $65, bucks, called a distiller's parrot. And they call it a parrot because it's kind of shaped like a parrot. And what it is is it sits up where your still comes out. It goes into this little funnel-shaped thing. The little tube goes down. And that goes into a, a tube that overflows into another tube, and inside the middle tube goes your hydrometer. And then a little thing comes out looks like a parrot's beak, and that's where the distillate comes out into your collection vessel. And you stick that hydrometer in there, your proofing hydrometer, not a brewing hydrometer, which immediately tells you like you're, out, you're, you're putting out 130 proof or whatever. And what that does is you, you're proofing it as if you don't have to stop. You don't have to take a sample and put your hydrometer in. You just drop your hydrometer in there, and it flows through the parrot, and it constantly tells you what you're producing. So when you start watching your proof drop, and you know you're starting to produce a lesser quality distiller, you know exactly when to call your run and stop. So there you go. More free publicity for the company that says they want to do a discount with the MSB, but never actually gets off the pot and gets it done. By the way, I don't care if they don't do a discount. The reason they probably aren't is they're the best and they know it. The welding quality alone of their equipment is, is second to none. I recommend nobody and nothing else over them. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Dennis from Puget Sound, and I had a question about sunscreen. Um, what is your opinion on sunscreen in terms of Like, is it good for you? Should you wear sunscreen? Should you, uh, or is being in the sun okay? Um, anything like that. I just, I've never heard your opinion, and after listening to your uh, heat stroke thing, it got me thinking. So, thank you very much, Jack. Love the show. Bye-bye. So, sunscreen. Um, there's people out there that say sunscreen causes skin cancer. 
I, I don't believe that, but I believe that. And, and that might sound like doublespeak, but I'll try to explain. Your body needs a certain amount of sunlight to produce vitamin E. I'm sorry, vitamin D. And you, your skin actually needs a certain amount of sunlight to be healthy. And there's, there's two types of rays come from the sun, UVA and UVB. And it's one or the other, but I believe it's UVA is the one that makes us burn faster and tan faster, and it's the one most uh, sunscreens block against. UVB, we can hold off a lot more of it, but it goes deeper and does more long-term over a longer duration. And I'm not going to say not to use sunscreen. I believe in sunscreen when you're going to be any type of prolonged time in the sun because what is bad is a sunburn, period. Sunburn is bad. And sunburns and multiple sunburns can increase the risk of skin cancer in addition to just solar exposure. Okay, So we want to prevent that. And they ruin vacations. They ruin you know days at a time. They're extremely painful. I've been through it myself. I don't like it. So I definitely recommend if you're going to be in any type of situation where you're prone to sunburn that you use sunscreen. And that in general, sunscreen is a good thing. There's two problems as it relates to skin cancer, in my opinion. And my opinion is backed up by, you know, you're not a doctor. I know I'm not, but I got a doctor named Dr. McCullough who's been ahead of the, head of the curve on so many things in America that people called him nuts for, and then all of a sudden everybody agrees with him who called him a nut, right? And uh, so Dr. McCullough agrees with this and quite a few other doctors, including dermatologists, that have actually researched it instead of listening to the drug reps uh, and whatnot, uh, agree with this as well. You're supposed to be in the sun, but you're not supposed to be in the sun long term. That's not how the human body works. If you if you go back to when we were hunter-gatherers, we did just, just sit out in the sun for hours at a time baking until we burnt. We sought refuge. We shot, sought shelter. But we also, in our daily lives of being a hunter-gatherer, got exposure to the sun. We got a lot of shade. We got a lot of sun. We kind of back and forth. And when we were uncomfortable, we got out of the sun. What happens is, first of all, everybody wants a deep, you know, Southern California tan because the thing it looks sexy, so everybody wants to tan. And then the other thing is, people think once they have that sunscreen on them, they're not going to burn that they can be out there in that sun for a lot longer period of time. Now, whether you burn or not, that UVB radiation is still going deep into you and doing the damage that it does. And general solar exposure and tanning has been shown to cause a uptick in either very benign uh, type precursors to skin cancer and skin cancers that are very easy to treat and, and generally non-life-threatening. They've not shown in, in any, any study period ever, no matter what you've been told, has not been shown to increase serious melanomas that are life-threatening. However, extended long-period exposure in the sun has been shown to do that. And then there are other rays of the sun, and you can get in all this if you want to. Dr. McCullough actually recommends people tan in a specific type of tanning booth that gives you more of what you need and very little of what you don't need. I don't know that I would go that far. Um, but when we go out and we think, well, we can be out in the sun day after day after day after day tanning and soaking up the sun and getting all this sun on ourselves, because we have this protection from burning, we actually increase skin cancer rates. And skin cancer rates have gone up every single decade 
from the 1950s till right now, and gee, in the 1950s is when all this sunscreen showed up, and we were told that, you know, doctors recommend you put it on you, which is when any company selling a health product does get doctors to say you should use it, right? And there's almost no real regulation over sunscreen as well. Some sunscreens are pretty good, some sunscreens are pretty bad, some sunscreens suck. I have a, a link to an article by Dr. McCullough that explains all of this and more and specifically recommends brands for adults and children of sunscreens. And I give it my Spirco endorsement, even though I think his own endorsement of himself is better than my own. Um, so I would refer you in that direction. On another note, I think the best thing that we can do to protect our skin when the sun is intense is lightweight, purpose-made clothing. Things like uh, bamboo fiber shirts are fantastic for this. They dry quickly. They stay cool. They allow you to wear long sleeves and not be hot. Now, I don't walk around in long sleeve shirts all day long. But what I'm talking about is getting out and fishing, being on the beach and stuff like that. The purpose-made clothing that has an SPF rating of like a 50 is, 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 and then dries quickly and stays cool so you don't pass out in the heat. And, and you know, hats and things like that. I think those are actually... And then we only have to use the sunscreen on the parts of our, our skin that are exposed. And I think that, that that is a better approach overall. That That's my take on it. I'm sure I'll get hate mail from people that disagree with me. That's fine. It's my opinion. Uh, I think it's based on a lot of scientific fact. And uh, I have not seen any of this refuted. I've heard it objected to. I've heard people get mad. I've heard people gnash their teeth. I've heard people say, well, doctors say. I haven't seen anybody provide any conclusive evidence counter to the evidence that Dr. McCullough provides, which is quite conclusive to me. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead. We've got one more and a rare two calls from one guy in the same episode. But because of what it is, I'll let it in. Hey, Jack, it's JR from Oklahoma. I was listening to episode 2213. You were answering a question about high-point carbines and budget-type uh, fighting or self-protection firearms. So right now, on ClassicFirearms.com, they've got some Glock 22s, which is 40 caliber, Generation 2, so no finger grooves. They're used law enforcement trade-ins, and they've got them for $299.99. So if anyone is wary about the price of a $500 bill for a, some type of fighting pistol, like a Glock or something like that, $299.99, if your budget can handle that, this is something that it is one of the best fighting pistols in the world. You can um, – I don't have to argue that point one way or the other, but that's where it sits. So if you've got a budget in that range, go to ClassicFirearms.com and check out the, what they've got for their law enforcement trade-ins. I'm sure you'll be super happy if you get one of those. Thanks, Jack. Well, um, I went there, and I looked up the Gen 2 Glock 22s, and they were $399.99. So I don't know if JR made an error, or I don't know if they got a certain number of them in, and when a certain number of them sold, they jacked the price up 100 bucks because $299.99 was a smoking deal. Um, but I have a link to them, and I think that the law enforcement returns on the Glock 22s are one of the best deals in firearms today. And I'll tell you why. Most cops don't do jack diddly shit with their guns. You know, and you can put, I mean, 
I come down hard on Glocks. I think sometimes people think, and I really don't. I just don't personally like the damn things. I respect what they are. I have 100% confidence in their reliability as one of the most reliable guns out there. I just don't like them. I don't like the way they feel. I don't like the way they handle. I don't like the way they point. I don't like them. But if I uh, was in a situation where I needed a gun and that was available, I wouldn't hesitate to pick it up. You know, I, I'm a 1911 guy. That's what I am, and there's, I have my reasons. Um, but it's a uh, it's a hell of a gun. And I'll tell you one of the things you need to think about if you've always thought, well, yeah, one day I'll get one of these law enforcement returns. Um, more and more departments are yielding to this freaking political correctness, freaking stupidity, and they're disposing of their guns versus selling them back into the secondary market. This is stupidity, but it's happening, and it means that there's going to be less of them available, and that means that they're going to not be quite the smoking deal that they were. Now, when I say most cops don't use their guns, I don't mean they don't shoot people with them. I mean they don't train. I mean, I've talked to plenty of cops that will be honest and say, yeah, I get to the range once a year. Because they have to, buy, you know, I think they have to qualify once a year, and then anything else they have to buy their own ammo for and stuff like that, and they don't want to do it. Um, most of the, and I've looked at some of these, uh, the gun shows around here, they used to get them in all the time at the gun shows, and you look at them, and some of them you go, I can't tell that this thing was, anything was ever done with it, another was carried in a holster, and that's probably because all was ever done with it. Uh, so it, it's a good deal, and it's something definitely worth looking into. And, and even at three ninety nine, you know, I think they're a hell of a deal. They come with a magazine and and, and, and night sights and what have you. So uh, you can check them out. They're definitely a, a solid value. And uh, if you've always, again, the reason I, I brought this one into this episode, if you've always been the guy, one day I'll get one, you might want to think about it because it, I, I've heard more and more stories of departments not putting them back on the market, as stupid as that is. And, you know, it's to me it's also disrespectful to taxpayers, and it's disrespectful to law-abiding gun owners. And, and so here's the, the law-abiding gun owner thing. So when law enforcement takes these guns and then puts them into the secondary market, they don't go, well, they went to the gun show through the loophole. There's no loophole, stupid, right? I mean, I just, I'm so sick of the gun, hole, the gun show loophole. There's no gun show loophole. The reality is in most states, one private person can sell a gun to another private person. Whether that's done at my, in my garage, in a parking lot, or at a gun show doesn't change the fact that there's private sales of firearms. So there are some private sellers at gun shows. They're very much the minority. They are not the people selling these guns. <laughs> these guns are sold into dealer networks. They are put through the same background check as every other gun that's out there. And therefore, they're being sold to law-abiding citizens that pass, that pass the insta-check. So by saying that you're contributing to criminal violence through selling guns through law-abiding dealerships to law-abiding citizens, that's pretty damn insulting. As far as how it's insulting to taxpayers, well, if you're destroying them, you're not recouping any of the investment in them. That's not your money, stupid. I'm talking to the police chiefs behind stuff like this down, city council behind. That's not your money, dumbass. That's the people's money that you're throwing away because you're an asshole. So at least get some of their damn money back for this next round of guns you're going to buy that are also probably never going to be trained with. And I wonder how often these things really need to be traded in. I mean, I don't get it. These damn Glocks do last forever. And these guns, you know, they've been fired 50 times, some of them, 100 times others, and they're good for 10,000 rounds or more before you even got to 
clean the damn things with a Glock according to the Glock owner. And we're trading them in, what, every couple of years or something here? So you're wasting taxpayer money. At least recoup it and at least put those guns into the hands of law-abiding citizens who will value them more than you do because, unlike you, they'll use their money to pay for them instead of somebody else's. That brings us to the end of another show. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is by becoming a member of the MSB, the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you become an MSB member... Uh, you will be able to support the show at about 18 point cents an episode and get all your money back through discounts. You can learn more just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. I want to remind you guys the uh, 10 year anniversary party that's coming up. It's going to be pretty much open to MSB members only. Not everybody that wants to come is going to get in and I'm going to open it to MSB members first, which means it, it, it's not going to ever be available to anybody else. So I always try to do things for MSB beyond just the discounts uh, and the additional content and things like that that are there. And that's just one of them. On that note, the uh, 10-year party, I pretty much made a decision. Um, it is going to probably be for registrations. Let's see, I am gone till the 23rd. I am going to make it um, June 30th. It'll be a Saturday, um, 10 Central Time. I will push a link into the MSB uh, where you can sign up. And what we've said with the party, we're going to take 50 people. And we're going to do more. I just don't know how many more. So what I'll do is I'll put it up the first 50 uh, minus there's some personal invites like Kelly and Brian Black are coming and things like that where we've, we've reserved a spot for them um, that they will be able to, uh, to, to you know, do the first 50 will we'll definitely get in. I'm going to raffle at least 10. I'm going to talk to Dorothy. I, I've been hearing from so many people that want to come, uh, people willing to travel multi-state and stuff like that that I'm going to see what 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 we can do and, and try to do a little bit more. Um, you know, there is an expense. And I want to make sure that I was clear on something because Dorothy said I wasn't. I feel like I was. So when you come to this thing, there, we will have our own private room, our own private wait staff, and our own private bartenders. And Dorothy and I are picking up the tab for everybody for this five appetizer thing that will be as much food as basically having a meal. Um, so you, you know, you, you, you get that that's, that's, there's no cost for that. You have to figure out where you're, where you're going to park. There's valet available. There's, you know, parking. If you want a hotel, you get a hotel, that type of thing. Um, and then I said, you know, you order your own drinks and you, if you want additional food, you order your own food. Be clear that we're not, we're not picking up the tap for that. So it's, you know, if you want drinks, you order from the bar and, and they'll, they'll, they'll give you a tab. So we're picking up the venue. We're picking up the food And then beyond that, everybody's on their own because that alone is going to cost us quite a bit. We're willing to do it. And that's, that's a piece of capping the, the, um, the attendance. The other side of it, though, is simply, you know, I want, if you come to this thing, I want to talk to you. I want to spend five minutes with you at least. And if you start doing the math, you know, if you do 100 people, that's 500 minutes. That's, uh, geez, that'd be eight and a third hours, you know, uh, for a four-hour, three- to four-hour party. So it's just not even doable at that point. Um, that said, I don't have to talk to everybody individually. We can move group to group to group and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe 75. We're going to do what we can. Uh, and I've been asked, too, like, if a couple comes, does it count as one or it counts as two? Well, how many is in a couple? It's, it's two. Um, you know, I, 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 and I get that. And I'm sorry. I, you know, I guess it's a good problem to have. And I'm going to do what I can to make it as inclusive as possible. Uh, that's all I could promise. But but the date is going to be June 30th for reservations, and then the date of the event is going to be August the 11th. That gives people 
plenty of time that are coming in from out of state once they know that they can come uh, to, to take care of travel arrangements. It's a, almost a month and a, a month and a half, close to it's a month and a month and twelve days. So um, that that's what I can do. I I can't jam it in before the vacation and and do a good job with it for you. And I can't deal with it when I'm on vacation. I am, you know, I recently had this this dehydration event, and basically, I think it was just basically me pushing myself too hard on every uh, facet of my life. And I need this complete unwinding. So we'll uh, we'll do all that when I get back. Uh, with that, also the other way you can support us though is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you want to come to uh, to if you want to help out the survival podcast, that's a painless way to do it. You're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com, and you can do that. And uh, today's item of the day is the Gerber EAB Lite, L-I-T-E. Those that have been following this show for the 10 years it's been around know I've been recommending this thing since before there was a survival podcast. It's a little folding knife. It uses a standard razor blade. little screw comes out. Blade flips around. You get both sides of the blade. Uh, folds up like a money clip. Clips to the inside of your pocket. I had one gal on Facebook today said, I bought two of these. I love them, but I, I, what I hate about them is they're so small I lose them. I'm like, well, use the clip and clip it to the inside of your pocket or clip it to the inside of like a pouch or something. That's, that's why the clip's there. You know, you'll never lose it then. The reason I recommend this thing as an EDC tool is It amazes me to watch a person pull a $300 custom knife out and cut into sticky, nasty tape or start cutting a box apart with it. Cardboard dulls knives like just about as fast as anything other than hair. Hair is one of the fastest knife dulling implements out there, believe it or not. And I think that our, our working knives should be safe for things that they're actually you know best for. And, and we should you know not get sticky, gooey tape and crap on them like that. So this little $6... EDC knife that takes up like no space in your pocket. Make sure you always have a razor sharp blade. It maintains and 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 it prevents overuse of you know an expensive knife that you might be relying on for defensive purposes or some sort of a more important purpose. And you know for eleven bucks you can buy a hundred blades. And then every week you can flip that blade around, and every other week you can replace it with a new blade. And you can go two years for eleven dollars and never have anything but a perfectly sharp razor blade because it holds well, a razor blade. And that just makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I also give these away. These are an easy way to spread preparedness. Since I always have one with me. If I'm somewhere somebody needs a knife, I'll hand it to them. Like, oh, that's really cool. Like, you always have stuff on you. I'll tell you what. You want one? Well, yeah. How do I get one? You want one? Yeah, you want that one? Well, I don't want you that. You can have it. Here's my deal. You have to agree to carry it, get some blades for it, and use it. If you'll do that, I'll give it to you right now. And it, it starts that walk of preparedness. Because it amazes me how many people are like, well, what do you carry a knife for? Were you afraid? And then, like, five minutes later, like, hey, man, um, can I use your knife? I'm trying to get this thing open. Yeah, see, knives are tools. Tool. Anyway, so it's a great way to spread preparedness. And, you know, you can get it at tspaz.com for less than seven bucks a piece with free shipping on Prime. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, our song of the day as we continue through Pink Floyd Week. I call it Pink Floyd Week plus a day because we'll have a Pink Floyd song on Monday next week because I screwed up the uh, rotation. And this is my favorite Pink Floyd song ever. It was released in 1987 on a momentary lapse of reason. I've played it at least twice before for you on my own, before John Adam came along and started doing these, uh, these uh, selections for us. But it's called On the Turning Away. And it's amazing to me how different people can be politically and then still have the same goals. Because this is my favorite Pink Floyd song of all time. <laughs> 
This song, I loved this song in the 80s when I used to drive around in my Pontiac Grand Prix with my jacked-up stereo and my jacked-up back end on it with my 455, you know, uh, big block motor and my Rochester Quadrajet and my 6x9s and used to blast all different kinds of music. And this song I always loved. Before I even really fully understood it, I loved it. And uh, But David Gilmore said of this song, Uh, turning away is about political situations in the world. We have these rather right-wing conservative governments that don't seem to care about many things other than looking after themselves. And see, I don't blame artists like the folks behind Pink Floyd, like David Gilmore, for choosing a side of the dichotomy. Most people choose a side of the dichotomy. And based on their values and their morals and, and their things that they want and, and the way they see the world, they only see two choices. So, well, since this seems more like what I want, which is like the social justice stuff of the world, then the other guys must be the, the reason for it. Not understanding that both sides are the reason for it. And if you, if you listen to the words of this song, what it is is about not turning away from those that need our help. Not turning away from those who need assistance. Not turning away from those that have less than us. And to think that that's a left-wing value is ridiculous. And I don't mean that left people on the left don't have that value. But to think that's like something exclusively that the left values is ridiculous, or that the right values is ridiculous, or that you know only people that are centrist value is ridiculous. That's a human value. That's a human value. That's a universal value. And I, I think they really hit on it without maybe even realizing it. One of the stances is unaware how the ranks have grown, driven on by a heart of stone, we could find that we're all alone in the dream of the proud. And, and to me, that really gets to the heart of things where people are just doing the best they can with what they have. And when people feel that they're, they're, they're in a world of scarcity, they cling to things. And, and governments prosper, be they left-wing or right-wing governments, by convincing us that there's not enough for everyone and that we need them to take care of it for us. You know, another stance in this song is... No more turning away from the weak and the weary. No more turning away from the coldest inside. Just a world that we all must share. It's not enough to just, stand, just to stand and stare. Is it only a dream that there'll be? No more turning away. I think if you rely on government in any way to fix this problem, yes, it is only a dream. But who does the turning away? Each of us. Each of us. You know, I, I'm a big believer in clean up your own backyard first before you worry about somebody else's backyard. Well, if everybody in this country that could help somebody did, we wouldn't have much of a problem left. Especially if we can find that to help the people that want it. Because there's also a reality. There are people that don't want to take care of themselves. There are people that don't want to look after themselves. And I do believe, you know, even though I'm not a religious person, that God helps those that help themselves. There has to be some level of personal responsibility as well. But it's up to us. 
It always starts with the individual. So it's up to you whether or not you'll be the one that turns away next or not. And we can't all help everyone. We can't all do something about every problem that we see. And it's that overwhelming sense. And see, that's how the state works. It preys on the good nature of human beings to want to help everyone. The problem is once we see government as a solution, most people stop helping anyone. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And the words they say which we won't understand Don't accept that what's happening Is just a case of all the suffering Or you'll find that you're joining in The turning away It's a sin that sometimes Light is changing to shadow And casting its shroud over all we have known All the world how the ranks have grown Driven along by a heart of stone We could find that we're all alone In the dream of the ground As the daytime is hurrying, where the speechless united a silent accord, using love you will find the strange, mesmerized as they light the flame, feel the new wind of change on the wings of No more turning away